This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to Laurel Chaw, a Hong Kong journalist, and she's going to be telling us all about the protest movement currently sweeping across Hong Kong. She's going to explain why the protesters are there, why there are so many, and the laws that China are trying to put onto Hong Kong that has caused everybody to come out in the streets and protest for the pro-democracy movement. If you want Popular Front to keep moving forward, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. This is all grassroots. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. Or if you don't like Patreon, go to popularfront.co slash support. There are other means of doing it there. Maybe you can just outline what are the protests about and why have they kicked off um, in such a big way? The protests are about a proposed extradition bill that would allow suspected criminals to be sent back to a number of territories, including mainland China. So the worry is that if that passed, then China could use that as essentially a legal avenue to arrest anyone from Hong Kong back to China. And knowing China's record with human rights and knowing its justice system, it's very scary for the people of Hong Kong. So, so China would essentially try and use that as a loophole, they think, just to extradite anybody back to China? That is the fear, anybody in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong enjoys a lot of freedoms that people in mainland China don't. And the worry is, if that passed, then essentially those freedoms would no longer be there. We, it, would, it would be as if you were under the jurisdiction of China, or at least that's the fear. Right, and how come these protests are so big? Because... As someone who doesn't really keep an eye on what's going on in Hong Kong, it seemed to me to just, like, explode. You know what I mean? There's, like, two million people or something I read were marching the other day. Um, you know, you're there, you've been on the ground, you've seen these protests. How, how come they're so big? Well, Hong Kong does have a history of relatively peaceful protest. So there is, you know, a certain culture of, of standing up against mainland China just so on last Sunday, there was a million person march. That was on June 9th. And only five days before that, there was a candlelight vigil for Tiananmen Square, which happens every year. And this year being the 30th anniversary and with everything happening in mainland China, well, everything happening with the extradition bill, um, organizer estimated that 180,000 people showed up. So there is... I suppose, a certain culture of protest. But, I mean, a million people is still definitely a lot. And I think for what we saw last Sunday on June 9th was a lot of first-time protesters. A lot of people felt like this bill passed. You might not even be able to protest ever again. The fear was that if you're seen standing up against China or saying something negative about China, then you might get extradited. Um, so for a lot of people, it felt like this was the last stand, that this was their last chance, and that if this bill passed, Hong Kong as we know it would be gone. So it was kind of a desperate march. And then just a week later, and, it, and, and I think this surprised a lot of people, there was another march, um, and that drew, organizers say, two million people, which if you consider the fact that Hong Kong is a city of just over seven million, it's absolutely incredible that happened in just that week in between the two marches 
uh, we saw violent clashes between protesters and the police in which the police used what Amnesty called excessive force on protesters. Um, so that angered a lot of people. And then there's also the city's leader, Chief Executive Carrie Lam, who's simply not handling them well. Um, on Saturday, just a day before the second march, she made an announcement that uh, she would suspend the bill, which to a lot of observers, that's a big win, that she showed a concession um, to the people of Hong Kong. Uh, and a delay in the debate on the bill could essentially mean that it's dropped indefinitely. But Hong Kong people kind of were galvanized by the, the violence, her what was seen as a, a botched handling of everything by the city's leader. Um, and also there was unfortunately a tragic suicide of a protester just the night before the march. So this combination of factors sort of galvanized even more people to come out and uh, tell her, tell the chief executive that delaying the bill is not enough, that they need to withdraw it entirely. Right. Um, and would you say that the this round of protests are bigger than the uh, the so-called umbrella movement a few years ago? And maybe you can explain what that is as well. Yeah. So the umbrella movement uh, happened in 2014, and those were pro-democracy protests. Protesters were demanding universal suffrage because, long story short, the government was offering a form of um, democracy in which for the first time the people of Hong Kong would be allowed to vote for the chief executive but it would be out of a handful of candidates selected by a Beijing-backed community so it was is you know it's fake democracy basically exactly exactly and people were demanding universal suffrage the one criticism is that they never did quite define that very clearly so they want a real democracy. And um, there were talks for a long time about a peaceful occupation or a sit-in in order to demand universal suffrage. And in the end, um, after there was a protest and the police again used violence on protesters, people flooded the streets and ended up occupying pretty big chunks of the city for 79 days in total. Because it was more prolonged, you know, the, the you didn't get the, the same sheer mass of people in one place at once. But I think still at its peak is, um, I forget, maybe a couple hundred thousand people. So it never did quite reach the number that these protests have drawn. And also one big difference is that back during the Umbrella Movement, um, there were a lot of divisions within society. Not everyone agreed. The business industry definitely did not agree. Um, a lot of people felt that the occupation was too extreme, you know, posed an inconvenience. It, it was probably bad for business. Um, so not everyone agreed, but with 1 million people and then 2 million people marching, there's definitely more solidarity on this issue than possibly any other issue before in Hong Kong. Right. And how bad has the police violence been this time around? I've seen a few videos and they're firing what look like beanbag rounds and there's a lot of tear gas. You know, what have you seen out there in the protests? Um, unfortunately, I was away during the worst uh, clashes between the police and protesters, but they did use tear gas. They used, I think, twice as many tear gas canisters during that one day 
than they had during the entire Occupy, during the entire umbrella movement. Um, they used bean bags, which I don't believe has been seen before, beanbag guns, and uh, they also used rubber bullets, which I also don't think has been seen before, at least for not for a long time. Uh, they were definitely very violent towards unarmed protesters. There were videos uh, going around showing police, you know, basically, you know, gang beating people who were not really doing much. Um, so it, w- it was a level of violence that was shocking, especially to the people of Hong Kong. You know, this is a very safe society with very little violent crime um, and no guns. So I've, I've not seen any of the protesters being violent either, but something that really struck me is how well organised they are. You know, it seems like they've been planning this for a long time, like they know exactly how to move. I've seen where they're, you know, dousing tear gas with water, all sorts of stuff like that. It's been impressive to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that every single protester has been completely nonviolent. There are certain, you know, there are videos of, of protesters digging up bricks from the ground and, and throwing them at the police, but mm-hmm. certainly nothing that would justify the amount of violence used um, or the or the videos in which the police are shown, you know, pepper spraying, using pepper spray hoses, or it's unclear if it's pepper spray hoses or water cannons on, on, on a single protester or pepper spraying police, I mean, sorry, pepper spraying journalists, uh, pepper spraying a mom who, who was really just yelling them because she was upset that they were being so violent at young people. But yeah, they are extremely organized. And this is something we saw during the Umbrella Movement, too. Um, you know, the, there's a level of coordination, um, sort of grassroots coordination. Like one thing that's been seen a lot and that hasn't been seen before is the use of airdrop. So at certain on certain days and at certain sites, if your airdrop is on, you'll receive airdrop uh, images and their calls to action or flyers um, about what's going on. So that's interesting. And during, yeah, there's a lot of coordination you'll see, even during very, very peaceful sit-ins. Uh, for example, you'll have first aid people in yellow vests handing out um, face masks and, and uh What's been really popular are these uh, cooling patches for your forehead that are usually put on like babies who have fevers, but because it's so hot out, people like to wear them while you're protesting. <laughs> it's the most well-organized protest I've ever heard of. What what are these airdrops? So so that you'll just be like sitting around and you'll just receive something on your phone, like someone nearby has sent it. Yeah. So um, I mean, it usually happens at like hot spots, right? So the times I've gone it are, for example, on on the subway on the way to a march um or you'll be there's a the protesters have decided to stop occupying the roads there's still a constant presence outside of the government building if you're standing around there sometimes you'll get an airdrop or uh, the site where the protester died um you might get an airdrop there too so yeah you're just uh walking around but yeah, I guess they, people have just been airdropping things randomly. And I've also seen videos of uh, people uh, projecting video loops of police violence in public spaces. And why do they airdrop it? Is it to avoid you know, being watched online or whatever? It's a good question. I guess it's like the modern equivalent of handing out flyers and it's anonymous and 
you can reach a lot of people at once. I, I think uh, there's definitely been a lot of, uh, there's definitely been an increased focus on one's own security, especially when it comes to digital security. So uh, people are more careful. They're covering their faces. Um, they're also, for example, here, I guess in the UK, you have your oyster cards and we have octopus cards. For the trains, the tubes. Yeah, for the tube and um, just about anything. So it, when I was coming back from the first march, I was confused because people were standing in line for the ticket machines, which you don't see very often because everyone has an octopus card. And later I saw on Twitter that it was because people were wanting to avoid a digital trail of where they had been. Or people are using Telegram. There's a lot of uh, very large Telegram groups in which people are spreading information and updates, though there were concerns at one point, and I think they became less popular because, I mean, once you have a Telegram group with several thousand people, the risk of, of it being infiltrated by the police, for example, is becomes quite high. So I think they did become less popular. The, the ones I'm in, at least, are still very active. What, what's yeah. the kind of sentiment? Like, what's, what's the sentiment in these groups? What are they saying? Are they saying, like, we're going to carry on or are there new plans or whatever? I mean, without exposing anything. What, what's the general feeling right now? Um, I think people, I mean, and this is a sentiment I get from just being around them. Uh, and today I was, I was at the government offices when... Carrie Lamb, the chief executive, had a press conference, for example. People are just, uh, they're determined to fight. They're determined to fight until they get what they want. And the main thing is the withdrawal of this bill. And they want Carrie Lamb to step down. Is that correct? Yes, they do. And she's, sorry, explain exactly who she is and why everyone is so mad with her. So she's the chief executive of Hong Kong. You know, she's effectively our, our president, if you will. Um, and she was not democratically uh, voted for. She was voted, she was nominated by a nominating committee and then voted by, I think, the same committee. I mean, it's a farcical system. So basically, she's a Beijing-backed leader of the city. And it is a tough job. You know, she has to keep her bosses, Beijing, happy, while also keeping Hong Kong happy because even though she's not, you know, per se accountable to them, we, we've seen what happens when Hong Kong people are not happy and, and no one wants that. Beijing definitely doesn't want that. So it's a, it's a tough job. I'll give her that. Um, but she has not been handling the protests very well. Um, she's known, she's considered, she's seen as being out of touch. Uh, a while back, she got a lot of flack because she said something like she doesn't even know where you can buy toilet paper because she hasn't done that in so long. Jeez. So she's pretty out of touch, um, which is about which is a pretty common theme when it comes to our leaders. And keep in mind, we've only had a few leaders since um, the handover of Hong Kong back to China only happened in '97. Right, and maybe you can explain a little bit about the legal situation then, because this is something I've been kind of confused about, and I think a lot of Brits especially are considering it used to be a colony like what so Hong Kong is an autonomous region but it's under control of China like is that right so Hong Kong is technically a special administrative region of China of which there are two Hong Kong and Macau 
And Macau is also a former colony of Portugal. Um, so essentially, you know, we are part of China. We were handed back to China. But we were promised that we would be able to basically continue as is and enjoy a high degree of autonomy when it comes to our legal, administrative, and, and judicial systems uh, for the next 50 years. And when does that run out? So that runs out, so it's 97, so I guess 2047. Right, yeah. So it seems that China is trying to grip as much of Hong Kong under its power as possible at the moment. Right. So the the way things are supposed to be, it's called um, one country, two systems. You'll hear that thrown around a lot. And one country, two systems is certainly being eroded slowly by Beijing. Um, we've seen erosions of freedom of the press. Um, we've seen lawmakers that were elected because there are actually some lawmakers that are democratically elected who were barred from taking office. And we've seen leaders of the democracy movement jailed. So there have certainly been erosions and those are the things that are making Hong Kong people nervous. Yeah, speaking of uh, democracy, people being jailed, there was this guy, uh, Joshua Wong. I read that he's been protesting since he was, I think, 13. Can you tell me who he is? Because he's just got out of jail, right? I mean, it's coincidental that his kind of um, sentence just finished. But right in the middle of this protest movement, I saw the second he got out of jail, he's on the steps saying, like, Carrie Lam is a liar. We've got to keep going. Yeah, so Joshua Wong is sort of the poster child of the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. He first rose to fame when, yeah, he was a young teen because he led a protest against a proposed national education policy and the protest successfully got the government to back down. Um, and it was essentially policies that would enforce very patriotic curricula in schools. So he first rose to fame during that and then he became the leader or at least, you know, the face of the Umbrella Movement. Um, and after the Umbrella Movement, him and the other student leaders, and at the time, I think he was 17, yeah, five years ago, him and other student leaders formed a political party. And their, uh, their members were some of the ones that were disbarred after they were successfully voted in. Um, so he was jailed five years after the protests of the Umbrella Movement for, I forget the, I, th I think it was, it was um, contempt of court or, for some, or something. Yeah, that's why I read yeah. this morning. Yeah, he, you know, he had been ordered to clear out the protests back during the Umbrella Movement and did not. And he was sentenced to jail for two months, not a whole lot of time. Um, and he was released halfway through his sentence for good behavior, which just so happened to fall uh, two days ago. Right, and now he's out. I mean, surely this is going to have a difference. He seems like a very charismatic guy, you know what I mean? He's certainly a leader in terms of the protest. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, he is a charismatic leader. He definitely rallies people. And right after he got out of jail, he's doing interviews. He led a march to Carrie Lam's office, um, which ended in an overnight occupation of a couple of roads. Um, so I think it does inject 
energy into the movement, especially at a time when people are wondering how long they can keep this up for. Um, and it also just inserts another unknown factor. So, you know, it's certainly a win for, for the movement. Um, but in, in what ways we'll see. And in terms of China cracking down, do you see this, I guess, I mean, I know it's impossible to predict, but do you see this potentially getting ugly? Because already we've seen the police going in very heavy, uh, which I think clearly is fair to presume they've been told to do that. I mean, do you think things could escalate in terms of the violent side of it? Well, the thing about authority in Hong Kong is you just never know quite how many orders they are taking from Beijing. Um, or, you know, Carrie Lam, she says she can't tell the police what to do necessarily, or, and I, that's true, legally speaking, but, you know, how much responsibility she can take for what the police did, we don't really know. And she claims she does not. Um, but uh, well, that is always the fear that, you know, we can have another tenement on our hands, mm -hmm. right? And especially with the 30th anniversary Having happened just on June 4th, it's certainly fresh. You know, it's certainly on people's minds. But that would be so extreme. Uh, I don't see that happening, especially considering the backlash towards the police violence that happened last week. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly hope it doesn't happen. I don't see it happening. But you never know. And that is always a fear. Sure. Um, what's the kind of demographic of people on the ground? I read that some of them are like specific groups, you know, for example, Joshua Wong's group were there and then other student groups, you know, what is it like? Are you seeing any specific demographic? Um, so the marches uh, and, the, and the strikes were organized by a group called the Civil Human Rights Front. Um, but they've also sort of, utilized a decentralized approach, um, which so far seems successful. So Joshua Wong's group, um, which is now called Demosisto, that's the name of their political party, that's a sort of a youth-led pro-democracy political party that's um, a, a remnant of the umbrella movement. Um, but in terms of the people on the ground, with the marches, especially with a one million or two million person march, in a city of 7 million people, you pretty much see everyone. You you know, I saw babies, I saw toddlers, I saw old elderly people. Um, there's one 90-year-old, 92-year-old woman I saw marching alone. So you, you, you really do see a cross-section of society. But when it comes to the strikes or, you know, when things get a bit rowdier or violent it is generally young people and they are getting quite young um you'll see students who come after school after their exams students who are too young to have participated in the umbrella movement so you'll see teens up to people in their mid-30s generally they're the ones who are generally the really hardcore ones Okay. Um, and Laurel, before you go, um, is there anything else you, you want to mention that you think people should know about these protests in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think the level of organization is something that's definitely quite remarkable. Uh, the videos that have gone viral from the marches, for example, I don't know if you saw, but, you know, 
there were a few times when the crowd just parted instantly. Um, one time for an ambulance. And, you know, these are crowds of hundreds of thousands of people. And an ambulance had to get through that. And they just parted instantly. And they were able to drive through. And as soon as the ambulance passed them, people closed the gap again. And they did the same for buses that needed to get through. Mm. Um, so there's a level of, of cooperation and solidarity um, that is quite touching to anyone who sees it, no matter what side you're on. Um, and I think that's something Hong Kong people are, Hong Kong protesters are quite proud of. Yeah, it's been incredible to watch. Um, something you just said there, though, about what side, you know, someone is on. Is there, you know, we should talk about the other side. Is there a large kind of pro-China, pro-Beijing presence in Hong Kong? There definitely is a pro-China contingent. Uh, the Legislative Council, the lawmaking body right now, is majority pro-China. And that's, you know, it also helped that they disbarred a good chunk of the pro-democracy lawmakers. But yeah, you certainly, people are pro-China, definitely older people. Um, a lot of protesters' parents are probably pro-China. Uh, but at the same time, you don't see the same level of division you've seen before. Um, for example, you know, in something that's similar to what happened in the U.S., for example, during the Umbrella Movement, there was a sort of a pro-police movement with its own blue ribbons and its own Facebook pages of people saying they supported their police, the mm. police in all this. But you, you're not seeing as much of that. You're not seeing that. I've not, I've not seen any counter marches i don't know if they exist what do you reckon like i've not seen any pro beijing marches whilst this has been going on no um the chinese state media has reported that there have been too much ridicule um they did post a picture i mean you know there was a on a day when there were a million people out on the streets china daily which is an English language state-owned media site. They said that on the same day, people took to the streets to to support the bill. And I think the one picture they had, or the one picture of the protest they they seemed to be referring to, had like eight people in it. <laughs> okay. So it's yeah. There's and I think what is notably different about this time around is also the support of the business of the business community. You know, generally as we've seen all over the world, it's bad for business to be against China. But now with, with these, a lot of international companies having offices or headquarters in Hong Kong, there's a real fear that this would affect their work and their employees. And there have been rumors that companies are considering leaving if they do pass the bill. So this time around, like the big four accounting companies uh, put out a statement saying they supported the strike. So for these big companies to publicly say that they support the protesters, or at least that they're against the bill, is a pretty big deal. And shows also just how deep this fear is and how real this fear is. Yeah, well, yeah, money talks. Whenever money gets involved, people get serious. Uh Thanks very much, Laurel. Um, if people want to follow your work um, and get in touch with you, where can they do that? You know, on Twitter or wherever. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Laurel Chor. That's my name. 
they're easily found. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Laurel. All right. Thank you. Take care. That was Laurel Chaw talking about the protest movement in Hong Kong. This episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com, Defense with an S. Check them out for various reportage on the world in conflict. And if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Popular Front. There are bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of stuff there. Uh, and if you don't like Patreon, which is understandable, go to popularfront.co slash support. You can help us out in other ways. Remember, this is all grassroots. We accept Bitcoin, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, get involved if you like what we're doing. Also, there's more merchandise now in the shop. There's uh, hoodies, uh, the, the balaclava t-shirt, all sorts of stuff there. So go to popularfront.bigcartel.com if you want that. We ship worldwide, all different sizes. So yeah, go there if you want Popular Front merchandise. Why wouldn't you? To keep up to date with Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash jake underscore hanrahan. Or go to the Popular Front Twitter, which is twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Again, like the site, popularfront.co. If you go there, there are now uh, loads of stuff there, new articles, all sorts of stuff. For all documentary stuff, video stuff that regards Popular Front, go to youtube.com slash popularfront. Uh, you'll see uh, documentaries there. There's more stuff coming soon. It takes a lot of time to do the docs, but it, it, it is on the way. Um, we filmed some other stuff. So yeah, youtube.com slash popularfront. Thank you very much to the following Patreons. Without you, this would not be possible. These people are Adam Berg Snyder, Andrew Fife, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Elizabeth Benicki, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Hardy Roberts, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Euler, Noah, Ari, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Kubal, Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin. Vida Provost and Zachary Hinge thank you very much for keeping this all going like I said if you want extras and you want to support Popular Front go to patreon.com slash popular front it all helps even the one dollar ones you know everything is stacking up so we have to keep this moving music in this episode the intro was by synthwave artist home and the outro was by son of old the popular front music producer Go to his SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash son-of-old. Dash dash